There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case for one of those families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. I was immediately drawn to it because I felt that there were several behavioral clues exhibited on behalf of Rebecca's killer. And I felt that those clues could help narrow down the pool of suspects. I strongly feel like there's more than one person involved. I don't know if there were two people there when she was murdered, but I definitely feel like someone came in to aid whoever committed this crime. We can be pretty confident that Rebecca's killer had a publicly known link both to Rebecca and to the murder scene. If you don't live at the residence and have no connection to it, You're not going to care if your victim bleeds on somebody else's floor or their carpet. You're not going to care if the dogs walk through the blood and track it around the house. You're probably going to leave the victim exactly where they fell, keep the weapon in your hand, and make a run for it. A stranger to a location isn't going to take these risks. Sometimes investigators get blinders and they're not willing to accept other facts that don't fit their theory. They're not willing to accept other circumstances that could contradict what they think. And that's exactly what happened in this case. It's been a while since we put together anything new for this first season of Break the Case, focusing on Rebecca Gould's murder. We've been waiting impatiently through several court delays for updates. As another trial date approaches, I went through my files and came across some audio recordings that I obtained at the very beginning of my research into Rebecca's case. This episode will include segments from my very first conversation with George about Rebecca's case, audio from the first time I met Rebecca's father, Dr. Larry Gould, insight from George's wife, Tracy, who also helped search for Rebecca when she was reported missing in 2004, as well as perspective from one of our investigative team members, Miranda, who has a very unique link to Rebecca's case. Hearing these earliest recordings provides insight for listeners about our initial thoughts on the case and how those evolved over time through our investigative process. The first portion of this episode contains segments from the first conversation I had with George on January 30th, 2019. That conversation literally spanned three hours and 22 minutes. We verbally weaved our way back and forth across countless aspects of the case, deliberating, dissecting, and analyzing as listeners are about to hear. Because we covered such a wide range of topics for several hours, we've condensed the audio to include the most relevant clips. Hello, this is Jen. Hey, Jen. This is George Jarrett. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for getting back to me. Oh, you're very welcome. Have you listened to the podcast about this case that uh, Catherine Townsend put together? I have. That's actually how I first learned about it. Because my editor, okay. my editor brought it up because we, we go back and forth about different podcasts and cases and stuff. And she had asked me if I'd listen to that one. And I said no. So that's what I did first was listen to the podcast. I don't know why this case just like gripped me, but I'm like, this poor girl, I mean, come on, this, this is solvable, you know, this is solvable. This isn't some stranger serial killer that was passing through town. Somebody in that community did this and somebody in that community knows. Yeah. It's just stuck with me and I just, I don't know, I've dug and dug and I'm sure there's still more out there that I haven't found yet. I can't let it go. I don't know what it is. You should see, I have a whiteboard. I'll send you a picture if you want. One whole wall of my office is a giant whiteboard and that's all that's on it right now is my my case notes and stuff frustrated me so much because I'm like, there is only a very small pool of people who had access to her, who knew she'd be alone, who knew where she'd be that morning. And it's such a small town. It's like someone knows who did it. And I, the killer over that many years would have a very hard time keeping that to themselves. Doing some geographic profiling because I figured out where Casey's house is and stuff. 
I basically know where Rebecca's body was left, although there's one thing you could clarify on that for me. But I was just telling my husband, I'm like, I just want to rent a car and just get in the car and go out there <laughs> just to get the lay of the land firsthand, you know. Well, if you ever but, decide to come over here, I'll be yeah. more than happy to show you around. I don't yeah. While I think about it, going back to where her body was left, was it on mm-hmm. the east side of Route 9 or the west? Because when I looked at Street View on Google Maps, about four and a half miles uh, south of uh, Melbourne, there's an embankment at one point on the west side and one point on the east. And I thought, depending what side of the road she was on, could be a clue as you know to the direction of travel the killer was taking. Um, it was east, I believe. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think back. Um, I'm pretty sure it was east. There's a road, if you do Google Maps again, it's the Lunenburg mm-hmm. road, maybe. I don't know if you've seen it. It's just north there. of Casey's? Yeah. I think, it yeah. Comes, I'd have to look at a map uh-huh. and, like, get directional points, but I do know that that road comes out about a mile from his house. Yes. And so if he took it, and it's, I don't even know if you'd even call it a road, it's more like a trail. Mm-hmm. Um I think if farmers and hunters might use it, but it's not much of a a usable road. You'd have to have a truck to go down it. Um, but I looked at that one day, um, and, I mean, her body was found not too long after you come off that road. I mean, it's right okay, there. Okay, gotcha. And, and so he got back on that main road, and he just dumped it quick. Or whoever the killer was. I mean, yeah. whoever did it. They definitely use that trail. It's not well-traveled. It's very curvy, very steep. It's out there. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a good spot to dump a body uh-huh. because there are times when there's no traffic out there at all. I've driven that road before. It's been many years. And I'm not kidding you, from Melbourne to Mountain View, I might have had one car pass me. So the and, person probably knew they had a decent chance of pulling off to the side of the road, yeah. doing this, and getting back in their car and leaving without anybody else driving by. Within two minutes, yeah. Yeah. You could get this hall where she was found. You could get it done in two minutes. Wow. Or less. And sounds like that's all you need on that road. Yeah. And there's also a place where you can pull in down there, like leading into the embankment. Like there's a little flat area Mm -hmm. where you could pull in that's close enough to where her body was eventually found that you could pull in where you won't be visible from the road mm-hmm. um, necessarily unless somebody was looking directly down on you. So the person who did it might have done that. If it was at night, they just turned their lights off and somebody did pass it. didn't notice. I wondered that too. Cause when I was looking at the um, street view, I'm like, man, like you could pull over, but you're still going to be blocking part of the lane, you know? Yeah. But that's why I was asking like specifically where along the route she was found, because it did look like there was one or two spots where you could, probably get the car all the way off the road. And then I also yeah, wondered, yeah. like you said, you think she was found on the east side. So it's like, well, someone was traveling south. They would have to pull onto the wrong side of the road and all this and that, which is also super risky. But again, knowledge of the local area, if they know the area and they know that road's desolate and that they could probably just pull over. And even if they did see a car, just wait. And there probably wouldn't be another one the person probably wouldn't take the risk of crossing into the other lane or the opposite side of the road to pull over because it would look weird for your car to be facing, you know, south when northbound traffic's coming against you. But, again, they obviously knew that road and probably knew it wasn't as risky as it sounds. If you go through that area, it becomes really woody and vegetative, like right where she was dumped. Mm -hmm. I was out there, you know. I know, you were. But Lee Arnold, the guy that actually found her, and him and I've talked about this twice, and there's a universal agreement. It just looked like somebody just threw her out, you know, just threw her down. I mean, right. literally, like she was just tossed down there and they drove off. And I think what it was, it was just time. The person who did it didn't have enough time. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. And again, is the person who did it, think about it. They were taking a tremendous Absolutely. That's what still surprises me about the dump site. I mean. Yeah, the dump site should have been inside the house because you're not putting a dead body in your car. You're just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the most startling aspect of the whole thing. I can't believe that I was so naive not to have focused 
in on that more from the beginning. Um, but that's a tremendous risk. The riskiest thing that person did besides killing her is taking her out of the house. Exactly. And again, you got to go back to that suspect list. Who has the motivation to do it? Whoever did this. To them, the risk of moving that body outweighed the risk of someone discovering the link between them. And there's right. very few people that meet that criteria. You know, it goes back and nabs her body and her suitcase was missing. And Is that for sure? Because I, I couldn't find if that was factual or not about the suitcase. Well, acor- so. according, to, according to Danielle, they never returned the suitcase. They never mentioned anything about it. Uh-huh. I brought up the topic of a blue car with Texas plates being spotted at Casey's trailer on the Saturday before Rebecca went missing. Later, after William's arrest, we learned how critical of a clue that report was, because it was likely William and his mother who'd been in the car. They observed a male and a female show up at Casey's house on the weekend before Rebecca went missing, like weed whacking or Mm -hmm. whatever. And I get it. It's been 14 years. So the aerial view of the house, things have changed, shrubbery, trees and all this stuff. Who was in a position to observe that, though? Like, it doesn't look like Um, any neighbors are really close enough to be able to observe that kind of detail. I have not been out to Casey McCullough's actual house. Mm -hmm. I have not been down there since probably Thursday or Friday after she disappeared. I never went back down there again. I had no reason to. Yeah. But I do recall, and I remember I asked the police about this, it seemed to me like there was a house not very far away from there. Okay. And I remember I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if those neighbors heard anything, because they would have been fairly close enough to hear something. George and I talked a lot about whether we thought this was a premeditated crime or if it was an unplanned crime of passion. It's still unknown for sure what weapon was used to deliver the deadly blows to Rebecca's head, but many suspect it was a piano leg from the piano that was in Casey's trailer at the time of the murder. The piano leg is missing, and the police will tell you, the piano leg was missing. Why would the killer take a loose piano leg, and how would he know that it's loose? Well, the only thing I thought most probable in my head was that as the body was being probably drug out, that it bumped it and that leg came loose and had blood on it or something. And so they just figured it'd be easier to just dispose of it other than try to clean it up and put it back. Or I had thought, well, if the piano leg was the weapon, then this wasn't premeditated and a scuffle, you know, broke out an argument, something. And the piano leg became that weapon of opportunity that was right there for the person to grab because Otherwise, I mean, even if they show up with no weapon and this is premeditated, why wouldn't you take a knife out of the kitchen? You know, it's like much more effective. Why? Why would you even think of a piano leg as as a weapon? That leaves a lot of questions in my mind. You'd bring your own weapon. You wouldn't show up playing the killer and be like, oh, I'm going to use that piano. No, that just wouldn't happen. They would have brought something. That's why I still think the piano leg is like incidental. I really don't think. Yeah, it's honestly, I don't think it's the weapon. This is like the most unlikely murder weapon I've ever heard of. (laughs) But uh, I know that it's missing. So, of course, that's suspicious. George and I also got on to the topic of Rebecca's dog, Lady, who was likely in the house at the time of the murder and who was found unharmed by the police officer who conducted the welfare check on Tuesday, September 21st. She has no defensive wounds, so if it's anybody other than Casey coming in that room, the dogs would be barking. Well, I wondered about that. Yeah, why wouldn't they have alerted her? I don't know. I mean, I've seriously wondered about that. Even if they knew the person, you would still think they'd make noise. I was surprised the dog was left unharmed. And I'm just going to say dog because I don't know what the other pet situation is in the house. And that's another reason I kind of thought that maybe a female did this, a female that has some respect or love for dogs. Every time I try to picture this in my head, I just imagine that dog yapping, maybe not when he comes in, but when she gets struck and then he's trying to drag her out or whatever, you would think her dog would be going nuts. I know mine would. And you would think a male would just, I hate to say it, like punt that little dog like a football or something, you know, to get it to shut up and get out of there. Like I was just shocked. 
that that dog was left unharmed. That thing would have been going berserk. That's what and, I figured. Um, so at the very least, she would have been awake. Yeah. Forensics are my specialty, so it was a topic I'd hope to get more clarification on from George. And not to mention, if it was someone besides Casey, I have to believe they would have left some sort of forensic evidence at the scene for the amount of time that was spent moving the body and cleaning, even if they wore gloves, yeah. you know, but hair or fibers or something, you know, and that's yeah, something I always wondered, but I also know the police have released like nothing. So I'm like, well, they might have foreign DNA, but they're just not saying it or they can't find a match for it or whatever. But the more I listen no. to you... If they didn't no, find I, any foreign DNA, then there's only one person that probably could have been. Yeah, because here's the thing. So I did a book signing back in 2016 at Dr. Gould's office. He asked me to come up there. Uh-huh. Well, as I'm doing the book signing, Dennis Simons, the lead detective on the case, he's mm-hmm. standing in line. I pitched the book to him. I thought he was another guy, you know. Um, I pitched the book to him. And at the end, he's the only person who's ever not bought it, by the way. He goes, oh, no, I'm not here to buy a book. I'm Dennis Simons of Arkansas State Police. I just wanted to see what you know about this case. And I said, well, hey, Dennis, next time you want to know something that I know about this case, just call me and I'll let you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll be more than happy to talk to you about anything that comes up. And um, so then he's there, and he goes and tells Dr. Gould that day. He tells Dr. Gould there's virtually no forensic evidence in this case. And... I told Dr. Gould even at that time, I said, yeah, there's no, there's virtually no forensic evidence in this case, potentially from a certain point of view. If you think Chris did it, and here's the other thing about Chris, Dennis has gone around and told people that her body was in the trunk of his car for days. I can tell you that it was very hot during that, that last week of September that yes. year. It was yeah. 85, 90 degrees every day, very humid. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact, I know another detective who worked with the drug task force at the time. He told me that they processed Chris's car and the cadaver dogs never hit on the trunk. So there's no way her body was in the back. Yeah. And her panties were still on. He said it was a sex assault crime and that he he was sexually obsessed with her. No, No. she would have wounds and there would be evidence of it. And even the medical examiner said there should be other evidence of this. Not to mention, even if they did assault her and then put the panties back on, which is unlikely, those panties should have held some, you know, DNA is pretty robust, yeah. and pubic hair or whatever, you know, it, those panties should have held evidence, and it doesn't sound like they found anything in them. So I don't agree with the sexual assault thing at all. No, she wasn't sexually assaulted. In re-listening to this first conversation, one of the most poignant moments came when I asked George the following question. Do you yeah. think there's any chance maybe Casey had knowledge of it but didn't actually do it? Like, he came back to the house to make sure it looked cleaned up enough or something? There's a good chance that initial instinct was correct. With what we know now, there's no logical explanation for Casey not at least suspecting his own cousin as being involved in Rebecca's murder. As our conversation drew to an end, I touched on the value of keeping a case in the public eye, not anticipating that George and I would be at the forefront of doing just that for Rebecca over the next couple of years. You probably have zero extra time, but there's another podcast called Up and Vanished. And uh, I honestly think due to the pressure that that podcast put out there on the community, the podcast mm-hmm. didn't directly solve the case, but I think it put enough pressure on people in the community to come forward. Right. I do think like any podcast, like what Catherine's done, I think putting that pressure out there, it might work at some point. Like if people stay on it and if people who have the ability, like you or I and other journalists or whatever who can write about it and, try to keep it in the news, eventually someone might crack. Because I don't know, aside from yeah. the confession at this point, I don't know how else they're going to solve it. Seriously, I appreciate you trusting me just off the bat. I mean, it, this has been so insightful. I'll go back over my notes and stuff and see if I can come up with anything, and I'll shoot you an email. I'll send you a picture of my whiteboard. Just, okay. yeah. just yeah, for okay. Andrew's sake, you know? So, <laughs> and you can correct me if I'm wrong on anything on it. Okay, yeah, I'm so. sure that's not the case. But. Well, 
you have way more insight than me, but no, this has been enjoyable. I appreciate it. So. Oh, well, you're very um, welcome. When I hung up the phone that night, I was sure I'd be talking to George again, and I wasn't wrong. From that day forward, we were in contact frequently. I quickly became so intrigued with Rebecca's case, I asked my husband if he'd be interested in taking a road trip to Arkansas. He readily agreed, and we set off on a 12-hour drive in mid-February of 2019. I really needed to see some of the key locations firsthand. Before we left, George introduced me to Rebecca's father, Dr. Larry Gould, via email. We all made plans to meet at Dr. Gould's house one afternoon while we were in town. We talked to Dr. Gould about his experience, his thoughts on the case, and debated the potential forensics of the case at length. Over the years, with the rumors that I would get in yeah. my office, with kind of being fuzzy, yeah. and when you have somebody fresh coming in, you're not clouded by any of that. Right. And you just go back to the basics of the whole thing. And that's kind of why I didn't want to interview anybody yet, yeah. because I just want to figure out the facts and look at that. And and that's what I'm good at, is looking at evidence and what does it mean and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm good at interviewing people, too. I've done tons and tons of it, but I feel like my specialty is more like the behavioral yeah. analysis of the crime and evaluating those facts. And I, I feel like that's kind of my bigger specialty. It's great to interview people, but it's like we're 14 years out. Yes. I mean, memories fade. People have convinced themselves something happened that didn't or the other That's way exactly around. Right. I mean, they've been tainted by the media. They've been tainted by their friends. So it's like it's. Yeah. Our hope was that 14 years matured some of the people that knew information and their conscience would make them. Their conscience forward. would. Yeah. They have yeah. families. They have kids now. And that that, that could be a. You know, exactly. Something that would. Of course, there's always plan B. We could start a, a reward fund saying if you have any information that helps lead to the, the conviction of a guilty party, I mean, mm-hmm. money would be a high motivator. If people like you don't, if George doesn't continue with things, or, then it's gone. Yeah. It's never going to be, be We solved. need to keep it in the media. Yeah. It's Here, been 14 we, years. Yeah. There's nothing they're doing. Yeah. There's no evidence to be collected. Yeah. You just need, someone's got to come forward. And Dennis told Dr. Gould that there is no forensic evidence in this case. What is up with that? That's that's impossible. And there's definitely forensic evidence because her blood was at the scene. So at a minimum, there's her forensic evidence there. So I don't know why. Well, there's probably tons of forensic evidence that they collected that can be DNA tested. Yeah. I mean, just logic is the person spent some time there in that house. They left something of themselves and this probably wasn't premeditated so there's a good chance they didn't have gloves on even. So their prints or their hair or their sweater fiber or something you know, is there. But whether they knew how to collect it properly who knows. But if they did and there's no foreign DNA it has to be him. Yeah. I know that they... it is an issue that his DNA is there. He lived there. So, of course, his DNA is going to be there. But sometimes the lack of evidence is more telling exactly. Especially than in the presence of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, to me, that's just like if I was a prosecutor, that's what I'd be hinging yeah. a huge part of my case on. There was, There's nobody there else's DNA in that DNA house. So. They'd already have him arrested. Yep. They don't really think Chris did it. No, they there's really no way that guy did it. Yeah. The sociopath or psychopath killer you know, doesn't have a conscience. Now, 14 years later... There is a point where uh, you got to try to figure out how do you how do you bring that emotion back out exactly. of somebody, uh, and I think that's what you're trying to do. Exactly. Right? My hope is that with the emotion that was involved in this, and like how her body got from the house to where it was found, why the cleanup was hasty, and the biggest clue to me is where her body was left. It holds a lot of clues, which we'll go over. And I hope I'm right, and I hit that nail on the head, and then somebody cracks. And it just, like, takes it over the edge. Prior to meeting up with George and Dr. Gould, my husband and I spent a few days driving all around the Melbourne area. We went by the trailer where Rebecca was killed, the Possum Trot gas station where she was reportedly last seen in public, the Sonic drive through where Casey worked, and the overlook where her body was found. We learned a lot by seeing those locations firsthand, particularly the embankment by the Overlook. You guys, I don't think she was pushed down that embankment. Like, what's being portrayed in the media. I think the killer drove 
to the bottom of the embankment, you can see imagery from back then, or close to that within a couple of years, is pretty clean cut, unlike it is right now. You could have easily driven down there. And I think he took her out of the vehicle and placed her on the ground. And I actually believe that she was probably wrapped in a blanket or comforter, but I'm willing to bet because no one in their right mind is going to carry a dead body out of the back of the house just in the plane wide open, especially if you have a pickup truck and drive her somewhere. So she would have to be wrapped in something. And I was always like, why wasn't she placed with the blanket or whatever it was with her? Well, he was hoping his cleanup job was going to be good enough that when the cops went to that house, they'd be like, oh, nothing happened here. And so he knew if he left that blanket with her, that would tie her to his house. And then they would figure out the primary crime scene. So I think he unwrapped her and placed her down there. I mean, we looked at the embankment extensively. Human bodies don't roll well anyhow. The embankment's different now than it was. It is that. different now. Yeah, it was pretty steep. I mean, like you, like I was thinking about how you'd get your car down to that spot. I mean, it would be possible, but it would have been pretty hairy back then. If she would roll down there, yeah. there would have been some parts. She would have been tangled in some way. It would have yeah. been tangled looking. And I don't know how she would have gotten all the way down. She was 35 feet down there. There's a lot of obstruction in the way. So I totally think you're right that they just pulled yeah. right in and dropped her off. And so something that that says to me, because initially when, before I came here, like everybody else assumed she had been rolled down the embankment, which to me is like, and I'm sorry in advance for this analogy, but it's like how you would throw your trash out, which gives a big clue about the killer and how they feel about the victim. But now that I'm pretty sure she was gently placed on the ground in a particular place, that actually gives her a lot more dignity and death which indicates a personal relationship between her and her killer. But one of the things you're saying is, and that we had heard before, that the the route from the trailer to that, you're going through the woods, uh-huh. and you're not up on Highway 9 at all. You're just nope. going directly to that You can site. get there. You hit one tiny piece of pavement just south of Casey's. So this is the road you can come in on. Okay. And you can come in. There's a gate here now, but that wasn't there at the time. And she was found in here somewhere. So, so you can come from this road and you can pull right here. Right here. Yeah. And if you're down there, nobody from up here can see you if they pass by on the road. If yeah. you turn your car off, you can hear a vehicle coming. So you have forewarning of a passerby that might discover you. But if you pull your vehicle down there, you're never going to be seen. Today and then you can go right back onto that road. The other thing, and I'll show you on imagery, mm-hmm. there is a dirt road that connects and it comes out right where she was found. Growing up in a very small town, you live in that area your whole life, you know every little back road. road. Of course. And the the property that they have has been in their family for several generations. So they they know that area. And we drove it the other day. It was really mucky and sandy and wet, but dry time of year, probably what, 15 minutes? So the route we took, it takes about twice as long to come down here as it does to take the highway. But you're probably not going to see anybody. We spent several hours with Rebecca's father that day, and by the end of our conversation, it was clear to me Rebecca's case had been mishandled by the investigating authority for years. As an instructor of law enforcement officers, I was appalled at the way Dr. Gould had been treated and furious at the lack of proper investigation conducted on his daughter's murder. I told him and George if they wanted me on board, I was there to help them in any way possible. Listeners already know that we became a team from that point forward and will continue until we uncover the entire truth behind Rebecca's murder. We'll be right back after this short break. When a crime is committed, clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's digital forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com slash forensics. While in Arkansas, we also got to meet George's wife, Tracy. She had some distinct memories of the week Rebecca went missing and recalled those for us. What were they telling you where you thought you were searching for a live person? Really, I thought we were. I thought she was just missing. It was just a missing person. Like maybe she wandered off or something? Yeah, because like George 
pulled me from school. Like, I, I missed class. And I went to my professor and I said, I was helping George look for, like, we were looking and questioning people to try to find Rebecca. She used to go to school here. Blah, yeah. Blah. He was going to interview people and ask them if they had seen her. Just trying to help out the family because he felt so bad for uh, Larry Gould. Just because he was like, what if that was my daughter? And they were like, oh, it's fine. It's no big deal. You know, but, but like, I never knew that they had found so much blood that they knew that there was no way we we're looking for a live person. Wow. We didn't know. We thought we were looking for a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they they never said anything about like, oh, by the way, we found her car and her all her belongings and her phone and her dog. No, they might have said that, but they probably made it seem like she just wandered off. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that there was so much blood found at the yeah. trailer that there's no way that she could have lived through it. Like, why, why was Rebecca Gould's dad out there putting posters on yeah. signs? But yeah. he was so, like... He was so desperate. Yeah. He was fine with his daughter. Do you think they second. took him? Yeah. They didn't. They thought they were looking for her alive. Period. I would be... Wow. There's no sign that she was still alive. No. I hate saying None. that. None. We didn't know that, though. The police did not tell anybody, didn't tell even her immediate family that there's no way that she is alive. They were like going crazy looking for a live person. Mm -hmm. That's the reality of it at the beginning. Where were you going to school? Ozarka? Ozarka. In in Melbourne? Melbourne. Yeah, I started that right after George graduated from college. You could have actually crossed paths with her. You probably probably did. did. Yeah, you both probably did. Yeah. Yeah. Did they, like, put up posters or anything in school? Or do you remember anything Um, at school? We were passing out posters, I think. Okay. And then, like, I remember that iconic picture of Dr. Gould posting that picture on the guy inside. I mean, like, it's terrible like why would they let a man who is like trying to find his daughter and they knew that he was never going to see her alive again and you think they gave him false hope too like they did there was no way that he was told because when george went out and and they had reported that woman had mm-hmm. smelt something bad and they yeah. found her body. He came out there mm-hmm. and as soon as George came back to the police headquarters, he was there and, mm-hmm. and her dad was like, did they find my daughter? And George was like, there's no other missing there's girls no other at missing this age. I mean, how else yeah. do you say it? I know, exactly. Because yeah. There was no other missing girls in that area. He did not expect that. Yeah. There's no way. So they did not prepare that man for that. Yeah. Or her family. Or anybody, it sounds like. Once I started publishing my series of articles on Rebecca's case in the spring of 2019, I received countless messages and emails from people. Most offered up thanks for helping keep attention on her case. But some of these people had a direct connection to the case and wanted to offer up their insight. One of those people was a woman named Miranda, who became an instrumental member of our investigative team. George and I recently got on a conference call with her and asked her to recount how she originally learned about Rebecca's murder. My dad is working on cell phone towers, is a project manager. He had these couple work guys that he would bring home with him occasionally if they were working close and they would stay the night at our house. And um, we got close throughout the months. They would come by and um, I was 20. I was working at Applebee's and waiting tables and we'd get off work and we'd go to my house and have some drinks. So I guess that's how I got to know some of the key players in this case. And I started dating one of them. (laughs) We dated for a year or so. And before we had started dating, he was up front 
we were having that conversation, like, do you have kids? Have you ever been married? And he says that his girlfriend was killed in his home, was murdered in his home. And at that time, I was just kind of like, really? Wow. That's insane. So I, I was shocked. And then, you know, that it's his girlfriend. I felt really bad for him because I'm picturing that he's, you know, happy with this girl. And then she's just randomly murdered in his home while he's at work. I didn't know if the suspect had been caught or, or not. That wasn't even the question. It was how he felt going through that. I was thinking about what he went through at that time. We were just getting to know each other. Later, I started wondering what actually happened. He was wanting to visit his family more, which they were seven, eight hours away from where we were. I had a lot of unanswered questions, so I was reading everything I could, and there was surprisingly a lot of conversation going on. It was on a topics board. You couldn't see their names. And there was a, a whole lot of talk, like everybody knows who did it. And it just left more curiosity. So I read the articles. Um, and I think that's a big reason why I never brought it up to him. I felt like I was causing him pain to bring it up. But that's another thing that bothered me. And I found out the person's not caught yet. And we're, and we're just pretending like it never happened. I wasn't okay with that. How did you find out or hear about the Helen Gone podcast? Um, years later, after we split up, my sister um, came across the podcast and I said, is it Rebecca, the, the victim? And she said, yes. And I was driving when she told me I put it on and I, I didn't turn it off until it was over. I bet. And what was your initial impression after listening to those episodes? I think it was the second episode I listened to was uh, Casey supposedly confessed to someone and I, I, I mean, I just hit the floor. I didn't want to believe that he did it, but the logic was just in your face, in your face. So it just grabbed a hold of me. Yeah. And so then do you remember what led you to reach out to George and then me? Everybody still had a lot of questions. Do they know his family? There was little things that maybe it would be helpful. And I couldn't take it anymore. I had to know. So I had to get involved. It was literally a turning point, I think, in George and mine research into this case. It it was a turning point when you reached out. Because we didn't know know you existed. (laughs) Jennifer, I don't know if you remember this or not, but we were kind of in a holding pattern there for a bit. And... Literally, you and I had the conversation, I don't know if it was the day before or maybe the day of, that some other shoe was going to fall. We had that conversation. I said, some shoe was going to fall, and you agreed. And why literally, I get the Facebook message from Miranda, I immediately message you, and I go, you are not going to believe this. <laughs> and then you said something like, call her now, call her now. And yeah, I'm no, like, well, I'm so excited. Talk. And then you and I talked, Miranda, for probably hour-ish the first time? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of conversation. And had I not contacted you guys, I would be sitting and waiting. Can you imagine me not knowing anything? I mean, that's how I feel. Like, I, I couldn't take it. There's not many things that I'm like, okay, I'm going to go for it. But this was one of them. I had to know what y'all were thinking and the details because everybody keeps some things to themselves. I know there was a lot more going on than just what I heard in the podcast. Sure. Or just the YouTube video was out or whatever. Well, I think you greatly influenced the trajectory of this whole case. I mean, we know law enforcement somehow got onto William, but like, we got that one tip, you know, and I shared it with you. You really were the one who started digging and you knew every player. That's the thing. Like I recognized names from the family, but I always had to 
confer with you to remind myself. Yeah. I remember we were in Lubbock, Texas, which is ironic because of the case we're working on now, but you, me, your sister, my husband, and one other person all met in Lubbock for a long weekend to try to sort through more of this stuff. And it was when I was on my way to pick up that fifth person from the airport that I got my first message from William Miller. Yes. And I reached out to you and I'm like, this is Casey's uncle, right? And you're like, no, cousin. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. You knew the whole family tree. (laughs) Yeah. So that, that was a big reason why I, I got in contact too, was because I couldn't believe the, the amount of names coming out of that podcast that I had heard or met. Mm-hmm. So Miranda, as far as William Miller goes, did Casey ever bring his name up? No, not by name. He did say he had some family in Texas, but he didn't mention any of them. Miranda, when you were doing the genealogy of the family and all that stuff, why did you key in so hard on William Miller? This is a, a small town that Casey lives in. Not a lot of people in the specific areas. And of those people, they all know each other or they're related to each other in some way. Mm-hmm. And in Casey's home, the home he's living in, and this piano leg. And we're thinking, okay, who's going to pick up that piano leg? It's got to be somebody that lives in that home. It's familiar to that home. It's not a stranger. Nobody else is going to go into somebody else's home and pick up a piano leg. Use that as their weapon. So maybe somebody in the family. And I also felt like the family knew because there's no way he could have covered all of this by himself. All these years held all of that pressure. And that Texas plate. Not that I realized that that was important information, but I already knew he had family in Texas. So we're trying to figure out who was where. When in his family, we were talking about 17 years before. So we needed first to know who his family was. So every night I'm on Facebook and I'm digging through all of his family members, trying to find their Facebooks so we can really map it out and see where they are now. And, you know, as much as we can. And I come across Williams. His was a little harder to find. Uh, What's the other name he goes by? Billy. Yeah, he had one under Billy. Maybe one or two pictures of him. But they weren't very good ones. Most of them were were weird and creepy. And then later he has another Facebook. And his name is William Miller. Because he has the same pictures and stuff. So it was weird. Everything about it. It obviously struck a chord with you. Or something stuck out, you know? Yeah, so we didn't know. We didn't know if he was around, though, right? And then we hear that he did live in Arkansas around the time of the murder. And his brother attended school and was pulled out by him, is what one person said. I don't know if that's actually what happened or not, but that's what we were hearing at the time. That's a big stretch, you know. Why, why would his cousin kill his girlfriend? But it's also hard to believe that Casey would. So, Sure. He was interesting for sure. We were trying to put anybody in that house. We didn't know where the mom was either. We didn't know who was living in the house or who was frequent to the house, who was close to the house. We knew the grandparents lived there and then the dad lived there. So we didn't know where the little brother was we had to know about every little thing Mm -hmm. and and just to get like a basic idea who would be close enough who did have frequent access who was supposed to be there because that wasn't clear nobody cleared that up when we were doing Mm -hmm. the genealogy and we were trying to find their addresses through the years yeah and just came up one time yep in arkansas yeah and it was only for a minute. and But at the least, it let us know that at some point, yep. she had her name on property. Yeah. At some residence. Yeah, she was getting mail there. 
yeah at some point exactly yeah. yeah at some point they were in arkansas yeah this is the uh behind the scenes stuff people have no idea goes yeah. on between the three of us hundreds of hours just in a six-week period or whatever researching these three family members these are the minute details that you have to focus on day in day out until until you can take it all the way to the end and say okay person was not anywhere in the area, or yeah, maybe they were. Miranda and her sister Joanna and I, along with a couple other of our team's sleuths, met up in person on two occasions in Texas. We spent a couple long weekends together studying maps and imagery, compiling family trees, and brainstorming nearly every aspect of the case, trying to glean some clues that hadn't been uncovered previously. We started this with just a conversation and a little bit of we'll get there and hard work and it's been amazing it helped me and i mean it's so personal that the in the ways that it helped me where i was in my life was not a good place and going to crime con and coming back there was this momentum that was wonderful my life has changed a lot and um, I guess it's been a continuing part of my life. Yeah, I feel the same. It's been humbling the amount of people that have offered up their help. I mean, especially you and there's many others that will remain unnamed for now. But just the fact that you guys are willing to give up one entire long weekend and we all traveled to a third location away from our homes and like got together and your sister yeah. bringing these ginormous maps imagery which was incredibly helpful and all the analysis that we did <laughs> those times that we got together it's like I never would have imagined people would go to that level of effort to help like it's been an incredible process and I hate that some you know innocent woman lost her life and that that's what brought us together but I hope that she knows her life wasn't in vain. And like, yeah. I have made friends through this process, like we all did, that we never would have made otherwise. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Yes. I'm so happy that I've got to meet everyone that has Same. helped. Finally, you know, the, <laughs> the first time I think that I got to see George was at Crime Con. And it was crazy just talking to him face to face. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. After all this time, we took so many hours on the phone. But yeah, we finally got to see it at least face to face once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there'll be more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I consider you a part of our lifelong team. <laughs> Wherever the future takes us in investigations, I like, I hope that you're there with us. And it was just like incredible to have that level of support. Because CrimeCon was intimidating. I've never given a presentation to that size crowd. Y'all did great. Well, we're like, this is the biggest thing that we could make happen, I think, for Rebecca. We're just going to go for it. Yeah. Um, she deserved to have her story told and to have her voice. And, like, when you've got... Absolutely. When you got her, her boyfriend whose house she was killed in who refuses to even make a statement for us to tell the crowd... That needs to be revealed. She deserves to be able to tell that. Why is he not an advocate for her? Right. Obviously, like, the first conversation with George, never ever could have even, like, imagined where the road would lead. But it's, yeah. it's led to good things. So what do you well, think the future holds for this case? I'm hoping that we get a lot more answers. We've got William pleading not guilty. Now he's doing the psych exam. I hope we get more answers. There's still a lot yeah. left unknown. One way or another, we'll get them. Well, not just me, but all of us, our whole team is not going to just accept some vague answer on this or whatever. What little we've been given so far, that's unacceptable. And of all people, Rebecca's dad <laughs> deserves to know the truth. Yeah. I mean, here we are. It's like a year and a half almost since an arrest. We know nothing. We don't know one I thing more, really. really. I mean, we know some more things because of our own digging around behind the scenes, but we don't know anything more than we knew on the day of the arrest, thanks to law enforcement. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you for all the help that you provided to us and your sister as well. 
You guys have been incredible. Y'all will never, I don't even know if I will understand how much this case has um, changed my life for the better. And I love you guys. <laughs> we feel exactly the same <laughs> and hope that you can help us on the next case. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> We'd love to. Rebecca's case has brought us together with people we never would have met otherwise. People like Miranda, who will be lifelong friends to me and George. Listeners will hear from more of our team members in the next few episodes of this podcast, and we hope to have updates on the status of Rebecca's case as well. Next time on Break the Case. It's really weird, like looking at his mugshot, I'm like, is this a dude I've been looking for all these years? I mean, seriously, are you the guy? The name was, uh, was completely new to me at the point in time when I was called and there was an arrest made. So I had no idea who this fellow was. Had never heard his name before. From what we know, there's at least two tips police had that very first week that could have or probably should have led them to William. So whatever this person knew that, that told on him knew a lot of information that the police could use. I mean, here all this time, people sitting around knowing about this didn't bother saying to me or you or people begging for help pisses me off. It was tunnel vision from the start. And it's that tunnel vision that took a case that should have been solved within the first 30 days, 45 days maybe. As we arrived at Rebecca's grave, we noticed a rock sitting on her headstone and underneath was the business card of Mike McNeil who made the arrest in her case. And not only did he leave his card there, he wrote on the back, sorry it took so long. Join AMU's cold case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jared on our investigation into what really happened to Rebecca Gould. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Rebecca Gould. You can also follow us on Twitter at the handle BreakTheCaseAMU. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leeshan Kranick and Andy Crow with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Casebreakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.